Well, good morning, Third Street. You know, I get this overwhelming sense uh, that it was really difficult for some of us to get here this morning. Is anybody else in that boat that, you know what, it was real difficult to get here this morning? And that, you know what, actually, prior to being here, I had a full boat coming with me this morning, but not all of us made it here successfully today. But... I barely, through the storm and by the skin of my teeth, Jesus, made it here this morning. Anybody else feel like that? Or is it just me? Okay. I'm glad I'm, I got a few people with me. Uh, I hope that you, will, that you will join me in helping me uh, get through this word today. I do believe that God has something to communicate to us, and I do believe that it is, it is in a line and, and uh, conjunction with the series that we've been in. Uh, called Bloodline. Church, can you say Bloodline? Bloodline. Bloodline. So we have this series right now called Bloodline, as we specifically bring back uh, one that we did back in 2017. But this time, rather than doing it through the lens, uh, we did it the first time specifically through the lens of the scandal that exists in the lineage of Jesus. This time, we're going again through the lineage of Jesus as we lead up to Advent, which is, of course, where we acknowledge the birth of Jesus and acknowledge our waiting the second coming of Jesus. Once again, as we travel through the lineage of Jesus, we are taking a look this time, highlighting specifically the women. But today, today, as we've acknowledged that we've been talked about Sarah, we've talked about Tamar. We've been through Ruth's story. Today, scandal and women collide. As we talk today from the story that we read in 2 Samuel of Bathsheba. So if you would, why would you groan like that? Like, why did you, like, y'all don't like Bathsheba? Like, bruh, oh, here he goes. Bathsheba. You know that scandalous woman. Well, we're going to talk about you today. Listen, 2 Samuel, chapter 11. You can pick me up there. If you're wondering where we're going to start, we're going to start at the beginning. If you're wondering where we're going to end, we're going to end at the end. we got a story to talk about today. This is 2 Samuel, chapter 11. We're starting at the top. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. Ah, here it goes. You already knew. It happened. It happened. I don't know what happened, but I can already tell. Oh, my goodness. It it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, because that's where he lived. It was his house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. I agree. That in and of itself is a felony now. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Small talk. After he had just slept with his wife. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and didn't go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my life basically everybody else is working my people are serving my people are at war and you want me to go to my house no that's that's not how this is gonna happen Now, technical difficulties are going to force me. Hold on. This is smooth. This isn't happening. Hold on. Oh, no, I know where it's at. I know where it's at. I've been around here a time or two. Here we go. Come on. 13. Uh Uh-oh, too far. And here we go. Okay. So Uriah refuses, says, I'm not going down while my people are at war. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today. And tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. I see what you're doing, David. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. Uriah, stubborn. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone 
on him from the wall so that he died? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, that's Bathsheba, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, this is tough. Um, This one is tough because we want to talk about Bathsheba. But as we just read... There's not a lot there. The one phrase we see her say specifically in this section is a phrase that changes people's lives forever, good or bad. She says, I'm pregnant. That's all we have to work off of. There's so many significant gaps in the story. We know nothing objectively or explicitly written of her desires, of her intentions, of her mindset during this whole thing, outside of knowing that she mourns when her husband dies. There's not a lot to know. But don't worry. I still found three key things. There's three of them. There's there's actually a lot more, but I only ever have time for three. Three key things I want us to learn from Bathsheba and her story, albeit it's ambiguous. Point one. Point one, our vantage can be a great disadvantage. Our vantage can be a great disadvantage. Disadvantage. I heard Pastor Alistair Begg say it about David, that his vantage, his viewpoint, proved to be his great disadvantage. See, what was happening was all the way leading up to chapter 11 was that David was winning. I mean, there's no other way to summarize it better than to just say David was winning. Any battle that David rolled into, it was a dub. Anything that David wanted to happen in the palace. It was done. Anything that he so ordered in the city got carried out. David was winning. And at this point, we have to believe that David's pride is welling up inside him to an all-time high. David remembers that once upon a time, he was a shepherd's boy in the pasture. When the Lord came to him and said, you, yes, you 
are going to be the anointed king over all of Israel. You, David, are my chosen king. David remembers that once upon a time he was running for his life in fear of King Saul because Saul didn't want him to be king. David remembers where he came from and he looks at where he's at now in the middle of war season. So high up in the rankings that he don't even got to go to war anymore. He sends people to war. He doesn't even have to be there. While people are at war, he can take an afternoon nap. And when he wakes up from his nap, he can take an early evening stroll on his roof and look out the king's palace and look out at the city. At Agrabah. No, I'm just kidding. At, but that's like what I'm picturing in my head. Look out at the city, and there's nothing in this city he doesn't run. There's nothing in this city that is untouchable for him. And that includes in his mind the woman that is bathing in his eyesight just over there. He catches a glimpse of a beautiful woman, and David sends for her. He inquires about her. He's like, hey, hey, y'all, uh, who's that? Oh, that's, uh, yes, yeah, that's Bathsheba. Isn't she married to Uriah? Now, a wise man, under biblical standards, ends the conversation right there. Isn't that Uriah's wife? I don't know. Anyway, what do you guys want to do for dinner? That's wisdom. David, having a high view of himself, seeing the world through his high view of himself, says, bring her here. Bring her to me. We'll, we'll eat together. We'll tell stories. And then he sleeps with her. Sends her home. In a culture where David had multiple wives, he didn't take her to be a wife. He didn't take her to stay in the palace. He brought her in to do what it was that he wanted to do and to send her home. Until he discovers the phrase that I'm sure in that moment he didn't want to hear, that she was pregnant, that it was his. And what goes forth from there is a cover-up of episodic TV show proportions. The type of drama we have to wait till Wednesday nights to watch when the kids are in bed. And we got that food, we, you know we don't need to be eating that late in our laps. But this is, his la this is his life. This is his life. A cover-up of epic proportions. These, the cover-up re results in death. Uriah dies. 
In chapter 12, you'll see that David and Bathsheba's baby dies. Consequences, fallout from them acting in a cover-up fashion. These are the facts that we're given of the story. This is what we have to work with. The way that David saw himself and the way that he looked out and saw his world led him to make poor decisions. What's unknown in all of this are all the details from Bathsheba's perspective. That's the gap. The gap is Bathsheba's perspective. We don't know. We don't know. But here's the point that I want to make. The way we choose to read Bathsheba says a lot more about the view that we have of ourselves than it does in actuality about Bathsheba. What are you talking about? What does the way that I read Bathsheba have anything to do with my vantage, with my point of view? Let me break down a couple things. I did a lot of reading this week because I thought surely there's something else that I've missed. Surely there's more to be known about Bathsheba. Surely there are people who are smarter than me who have uncovered it and I got to read about it. I did a lot of reading and you know what I just, you know what I discovered? I got a lot of people with a lot of opinions on Bathsheba. But don't nobody actually have cold, hard facts to back any of it up. It's, it's a gap. It's a gap. There is a legitimate reading of Bathsheba that says she's culpable in this whole thing. That, that, she, that she desired David. That when, that when he sent for her, this was like a dream come true. She may have grown up with posters of David on her wall. And now he sends for her. And so she goes willingly to the palace to lay with the king. To then conceive a baby. And then willingly watch her faithful husband, her honorable husband, be sent out to the front lines and to die. But what does that view say about us? It says, that, it says that for some reason, we have a high view of David that we feel like we need to protect. It says that there is a narrative that we hold really highly that we need to conserve. And any threat to that narrative, the narrative being that, God, that, that David is the chosen king of God, that he is second only to Jesus, that he is a hero of our faith, a narrative that holds such a high view of David must find a way to shut down any threat to that narrative. What are the narratives? What are the views of yourself that you hold so highly that anything that threatens the preservation of that mindset must be shut down? There's another reading of Bathsheba that goes to the length that says that she's a victim the whole way. That, that she was brought in 
against her will. That David lie with her against her will. That David killed Uriah against her will. And that she was powerless in the entire situation to say anything to David. And that David is the one from start to finish that carried all sinful activity out. And I have to wonder, what does that say about us if that's our reading of the gap? What does it say that we immediately jump to wanting to tear down David's character? That we immediately want to take someone who God has covered and redeemed and tear apart the dark things about him? What does it say about us that in our interpretation of the gap is to jump in and to try to blot out the character of a man that was clearly set apart by God. Maybe your perspective is, I ain't really thought about it. What that could show about ourselves is that anything from we have apathy towards biblical perspectives to we don't have a lot of experience reading scripture. But there's a gap. There's a gap. We don't actually know. And the way we fill the gaps of any situation speaks more to how we see ourselves and the world around us. Our view of ourselves and the way we see the world then can be a disadvantage if we do not become aware of the bias we bring to the gaps. We see it all the time, don't we? It's not just about David and Bathsheba. Watch the news. We now have different channels so that we can have people fill the gaps for us. Ain't no objectivity in the media anymore. The way we fill the gaps speaks to the way we see ourselves in a narrative. The way we interpret gaps speaks to the way that we see the world. And oftentimes our reaction is to just want to preserve our already firmly held view. When in actuality, if we can't acknowledge that we have a particular bias, bias is not a cuss word. Let's relax. If we can't acknowledge that we have a particular bias, we are unable to see how we overlook other characters in the story. We're unable to lend empathy to particular characters in any story. See, this is why diversity is important. This is why so much about our church experience here is uncomfortable and why all of us have to sacrifice something on our preference checklist in order to do church successfully with one another. This is why it's important, though, because we all have a particular bias based on the way that we came up, based on the things that happened to us 
based on the way that we choose off of those experiences to see the world. We all have a particular lens. And without diversity, we cannot lend full, holistic care to one in need. Without a wider range, a wide array of perspectives. See, this is why the diversity of the body of Christ is important. Because when the body is diverse, you can more fully understand how the kingdom of God would step into a situation and provide care. And what we'll find, more often than not, especially when dealing with people, is that most often there are not clean, clear-cut ways of looking at things. Which brings me to point number two. Point number two is something that Propaganda said a few years ago when he was here. He said, there are no perfect heroes. And there are no perfect villains. There are no perfect heroes. And there are no perfect villains. David is both the shepherd boy that was handpicked by God out from the flock to be anointed and appointed king over God's chosen people and the man guilty of committing adultery with another man's wife. He's both. There are no perfect heroes. There is no sinless, flawless hero to our story, minus, minus Jesus. But likewise, there is no perfect villain either. Bathsheba is both a woman who's just trying to catch a bath and also a woman who found herself outside of a promise that she had made, mourning the loss of her husband, lamenting the death of her child. She's both. There are no perfect heroes. There are no perfect villains. There's a whole lot of scandal in the lineage of Jesus. There's a lot of things where the TV shows we watch got their ideas from. There's a lot of scandal in our own lives. It's okay, I see you. There's a lot of scandal. But the fact of the matter is, what the devil intends for evil, Jacob says in Genesis 50, what the devil intends for evil, Ain't nobody going to finish it for me. God turns for good. What the devil intends to be deep, deceitful, scandalous scandal. Darkness. What the devil intends to use to separate us from the other people. Because this is a darkness that they couldn't possibly understand. This is a darkness that is so clearly condemned by culture. This is a darkness... That is so deep that you can't tell a soul for judgment, for outcasts. This is so deep. What the devil intends for your destruction, 
God is able to turn and use for good. The same woman who found herself on the outside of a promise she had made. The same woman who lost her husband. The same woman who lost a child would in the same chapter give birth to King Solomon. Ever heard of him? The same woman is included in the lineage of Jesus, is acknowledged and is recognized as an ancestor of the Messiah, the only perfect hero that exists. She is an ancestor rightfully of what the devil intends for evil. God can turn for good. There is consequence and there is complexity in all of our callings. And it's not by, the God, by God's design necessarily, but by the fact that we are attempting to live into a kingdom identity in a worldly climate. Our calling does not exempt us from falling short. Us making a conscious effort to be found in the center of God's will does not exempt us from messing up, from finding ourselves in deep darkness. But falling short also does not disqualify us from God's, from God's calling and perfect intention for our lives. There are no perfect heroes. There are no perfect villains. There are no perfect people. But God can turn the darkness in our lives. See, there's this thing that happens whenever we fall short and we know it. There's this nasty thing that gets introduced called shame. You ever felt it? No, of course not. Y'all good. But shame is introduced. We see it in Genesis. As soon as Adam and Eve fall short for the very first time, what's the first thing they want to do when they hear God coming? They want to hide. What's the next thing they do? They cover up. Shame. Cover up. It's a natural reaction. When we look at David and Bathsheba, no different. Shame and cover up. Natural reaction. We want to cover it up. We want to make it appear to the world as if it didn't happen. Although we know in our great theology that you can't hide it from God. For some reason, the shame drives us to cover up. Which leads me to point number three. Point number three says that let he who is in the light deal with what's brought to light. Let he who is in the light deal with what's brought to light. Yeah, there's cover-up. There's shame all throughout this story. But what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, is that Bathsheba lamented the death of her husband. She mourned the death of her husband. She didn't want it to go down like that. And she was grieved that it did. She was sorry. And then when you turn the page in chapter 12, 
So Bathsheba, Bathsheba had to be comforted after the death of her child. Lament. A part of lament is repentance. Bathsheba was repentant. In Psalm 51, we get to read explicitly of David's repentance. He acknowledges it. I've sinned. There's deep shame. Purify my heart, O God. Their first reaction was to cover up. But the way that God was able to use this and shift the darkness for the light was that they were willing to bring their stuff to the light. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we bring these things to the light, did you catch it? When we bring these things to the light, God is faithful to cover and cleanse us. God redeems the story. And even Bathsheba gets redeemed, gets included. I think specifically of John chapter 8, there was a woman caught in adultery. Parallels Bathsheba, right? There's a woman caught in adultery and the whole town has lined up to throw rocks at her. If it was now, they just tweet at her. But back then, they threw real rocks. They were actually hard back then. They, threw, they lined up to throw rocks at her. They called Jesus out to catch Jesus in a trap. And they're like, hey, what are you going to do with her? She disobeyed the law that you say you hold up. Got a stone right here for you, Jesus. Jesus stands between the crowd and the woman. And he says, all right, bet. Let, the, let he who is without sin throw first. You're not going to throw? And by the crowd not throwing, as a matter of fact, putting down their rocks and walking away, what they're acknowledging is that there is sin and darkness in all of their lives. But isn't it interesting that they can acknowledge there is sin and darkness in all of our lives, but not a one of them then took the step to, into the light. Only two people were in the light. There was Jesus, who has no darkness, and the woman whose darkness got brought to the light. Jesus says, if you're not coming in here, you got no business dealing with what's in here. If you're not bringing your stuff to the light, if you're not actively walking in the light, if you don't have your stuff on full display, you got no business dealing with this woman's stuff on full display. Matter of fact, I'm on full display. Let me deal with what's been brought to light. If you're not willing to be brought to light, don't you dare come in here to deal with what's in the light. But once she's brought to light, what happens to her? Does she get stoned? Does she get rocks thrown at her? 
Jesus says, go. Sin no more. She was cleansed. He says, you are forgiven. She was covered. Go. Sin no more. I got you. When we bring to light the darkness that's in our lives, I think we have this perception of God that he will deal with us harshly when it's shown over and over again in the text that he will deal with us graciously. I think of Peter who denied the fact that he was going to deny Jesus three times. Jesus is like, you tripping so hard that not only are you going to deny me, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, far be it from me, Lord. Ain't no way. Ain't no stinking way. And y'all know what he did, though, right? Y'all heard this story? He denied him three times. And then in John chapter 21, Jesus is on the shore. Peter's out in the water on a boat. John's like, hey, bro, I think that's Jesus. Peter's like, word is Jesus, jumps in the water, swims back to shore. And what does Jesus say? Let me tell you what I would have said. Man, if you don't, uh uh-uh. You're going to tell me. You're not going to deny me. You're going to deny me not once, not twice, but thrice, and then come in here like you're about to get some of this breakfast. If you don't get your butt back in that boat away from me, Jesus did none of that. He said, hey, man, go, go, go get some more logs for this fire. Breakfast is getting a little cold. Jesus deals with us graciously when we're willing to bring our stuff to the light. Those who are in the light can deal with what's been brought to light. Here's the point that I want us to get to, and then I'm done. I'm out your way. We have to be honest about the point of view that we represent. And we got to rely on Christ's body to fill in the gaps, the diversity of perspective. Because when we rely on the body to fill in the gaps, we're able to provide full care that is more closely representative of Christ. And that's a journey. And we ought not waste time looking right and left at the people who God brings alongside next to us because let's just keep it all the way real. All of our stories are complicated. Isn't clear cut. Not even a little bit. It's complicated. There's consequence and there's complication all throughout our calling. We all fall short. But listen to me, church. That is not an excuse to continuously fall short. Paul says, shall I continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. The Lord says, bring it to me. Bring it to the light. Because what is brought to the light will not condemn you, cannot condemn you. What is brought to the light will not write you off forever. What is brought to light will not be met with a one-way ticket to hell. What is brought to light will be dealt with by God our creator powerfully and graciously. But here's the thing, guys. The world will still hold their opinion. The world will still try to fill in the gaps in a way that meets their agenda. The world 
will still try to make our story match perfectly the agenda that they are pushing. But we'll be able to stand firm, having been cleansed and covered by God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were still a long way off, you sent Christ the light to us. And we thank you that this light is now made accessible to us. Father, we confess and we ask forgiveness because it's not easy living in a fallen world. It's not easy when darkness surrounds us so heavily to not let at least a little bit of it get on us. To not let at least a little bit infiltrate our hearts. God, we're sorry. But Lord, I pray that you would receive us in this time as ones who are bringing our darkness to light. Ones who want to let it rest at the feet of Jesus so that we too can be redeemed, so that we too may be covered and cleansed. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your graciousness in dealing. And though we all fall short, that you still see fit to include each and every one of us. Make us holy, Father. Make us righteous, God. Strengthen our tired hands. Strengthen our weak knees. Father, help us push forward, marking out a path worth other people following. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All who believe say, bless up.